This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. And now our next story comes to us from a listener in Valencia, California, named Richard Hood. This is a history story that Richard has been fascinated by, and he wanted to share it with us. You've probably heard that the darker the place, the brighter any light appears. Well, I'd like to share with you a story about a very dark place and a very bright light. In fact, an angel of light, known as the Angel of Mary's Heights. It all happened back in the month of December 62, and I'm talking about 1862, during our country's bloodiest war, the Civil War, officially known as the War Between the States, but more poignantly as the Brothers' War. One reason why it was called the Brothers' War is because the war actually did pit, some, in some cases, brother against brother. You can imagine, you know, if you have an older brother and he's gone off to Afghanistan to fight, that's one thing. What if he was going off to Afghanistan to fight you? That kind of changes the whole familial situation. And in the Civil War, the Brothers' War, that not only happened on occasion, a father was sometimes pitted against son. So complicated. So let me tell you more about this angel, though, because at the Battle of Fredericksburg, there was an important vantage point, a cliff top called Mary's Heights. The Southern Confederate Army was wisely using it as a cannon emplacement. Below this cliff was a protective wall keeping the Northern Army from gaining that cliff top. Hunkered down behind this wall, protecting the stronghold, was one of many soldiers, in this case a Confederate sergeant who would, during America's bloodiest battle to come, Antietam, would later lose his life. But he will survive this day, and a good thing for you because otherwise you won't survive either. So, are you ready to do a little pretending? Ready to travel back to your fateful day and time? Okay, well, here we go then. So you're up before Reveille today. You've only had a thin, dirty old blanket to cover you during the night and can't really sleep that well anyway. But the bugle does sound, you hear Reveille, and so you get up. Splash some water on your face to uh, relieve yourself of the dust that covers everything and adds to the dry mouth of battle that's to come. You look down at your uh, socks, filthy socks, barely holding together, and you put on your, your boots that have holes in them, but you're grateful because you actually have boots. You start to smell the coffee that someone has started, and uh, that's going to be one of your sole pleasures today, and you're grateful for that too. Uh, little comforts are pretty big when that's all you've got. You're in the Army now, as they say, and you're an infantryman in the Army of the Potomac, the Northern Army of the Union. Abraham Lincoln is your president, and you're facing off against the Confederate States of America, the Southern States, whose president is Jefferson Davis. I want you to take a moment and notice the coarseness of your blue uniform. You... Uh, also, I want to put on that rucksack again today, and as you do so, you try and adjust your shoulder straps to find an area of your shoulders that hasn't been rubbed raw yet. 
This is going to be adjusted throughout the day. You're going to be trading minor pains for greater pains. And you're also going to notice that pack smells strongly of salt. And you come to realize it's from your own sweat. And within an hour, your pack's going to be soaked again, just as will the back of your uniform. The enemy sergeant behind that wall that you're approaching, he was promoted on the battlefield, having survived the Battle of Chancellorsville, the fabled Gettysburg, and then Chickamauga, too. And his luck better not run out today because it's tied directly to yours. You're up against a real hero, the last thing you're feeling like being, and a hero not due to what he's already done and survived, but what he will do from the other side of that wall he's hunkered down behind. From behind that wall separating today, not just the quick from the dead, but the quick from those not very quietly or quickly dying. So on that cheery note, let's load up and start marching in the direction of that enemy wall. It's not until around noon that the first wave of your assaults begin in front of that wall. And no wave reaches as far as that wall. They continue, though, one after another, and they're also mowed down one after the other. The reports are not favorable. Your comrades get as close as 75 feet away from that blasted wall, and that's it. It's going to be your turn any minute. But before you go, you get the chance to look around and see all the carnage that has gone on before you. And you see how it's likely to go for you. You see the killing field between you and that wall, and you see a bottleneck at a ditch that has only three possible crossable bridges. And no matter which one you choose, it appears to be nothing but a slaughter pen. And you've been listening to Richard Hood. And by the way, he is a listener, as we said before, from Valencia, California, and a heck of a storyteller, putting us in the spot, in the time, in the context, which is so important as a storyteller and how we should always look at history. No one knew what was going to happen in that war when it started. No one knew what was going to happen when they charged the next wall or the next hill, except from what happened in plain sight from the other guys who had just charged. And it's so true, this civil war, this war between the states did pit brother against brother, father against son. The Revolutionary War did the same thing in large measure too. When we come back, we're going to continue this remarkable story. The story of the Angel of St. Mary's Heights here on Our American Stories.
And we continue with our American stories and Richard Hood's story on the Angel of St. Mary's Heights, who you are about to meet in one of the bloodiest battles of the Civil War, Fredericksburg. Let's return to Richard Hood. You're exhausted from marching and fighting, and you're fighting off exhaustion. Now you have to fight with absolutely no adrenaline left. It's almost gone. And your mind is shifting gears down to its most basic and primal functions, while the world around you appears more and more like some kind of outdoor insane asylum. Above the wall, up on Mary's Heights, the opposing Confederate cannons begin to let loose. So when you hear the order to charge, you're going to not only face a continuous sheet of flame from frontal small arms fire directed at you, but dismembering and deadly artillery fire raining from above as well. And later, one of the Confederate artillerymen would remark that not even a chicken could live on that field. You're looking for some way to increase the odds of your survival, and you can't think of a thing. And the insensible amount of death, along with its apparent utter randomness, sickens you. From what you can see, you should be one of this day's 12,600 casualties. And it doesn't look like you're going to be evacuated should you become wounded, which is likely, nor does it appear that you'll receive first aid. But instead, it does appear that you're going to lie there unattended, becoming just one more member of the choir of moans. Now, as in any fight, your mouth is dry. And at any moment, it might become drier still from the loss of your blood. And then surprisingly to you, despite its overwhelming odds and predictability, that indeed happens. And with the realization of your fears having come upon you, pain and its companions of shock and immobility join forces against you. You're now one casualty among the day's 8,000 casualties. So you're asking yourself, what was so important about that wall? Why couldn't your commander simply have gone around it? As you drift in and out of consciousness, whether half dreaming or awake, thoughts are distilled for you and reduced to one thing and one desire only for water. Finally, night comes on, and though your groans and pleas are lost among the thousands of the others around you, you have never felt more alone. No one is coming. No one will be coming in time. So, weary from battle himself and desperate for rest, the Confederate sergeant has been kept from sleep all this same night, thanks to yours and all the other pitiful, disturbing, and debilitating cries of those not quite yet dead. By morning, he can't take it any longer. And so this enemy soldier asks permission to put you out of your misery and uh, end both his side's and your own sufferings. He's just stared at. He's stared at as if he's lost his senses or has battle fatigue. Sniping at the wounded, it's just not done. But he's no sniper. And what he's asking his commanders for is permission to go over that wall and meet you head on, to come not to silence you, but to bring you water. 
His commanders tell him of the bullets awaiting him on such a fool's errand, making him a casualty of, well, either enemy or mistaken friendly fire. And they tell him no. But he is totally aware and totally determined and persistent. Yes, most of the wounded are, like you, his enemy or were. Now you seem more like fellow mortals just bleeding out and drying up. He requests to carry a white handkerchief as a sign of ceasefire. And he keeps asking until he gets permission he seeks. But he is told that no handkerchief, no flag of truce will be allowed. He'll be on his own and he'll be all you've got. Your last chance for tomorrow. Meet your sworn enemy. Richard Kirkland, Confederate Army Sergeant, age 20. The odds of help coming to you via Kirkland are less than the odds were of being wounded. There are just too many wounded sprawled in front of that wall. And Kirkland has, well, he's alone and he has no plan, except for the filling of every canteen he can find. And it seems time itself holds its breath as over the wall he slips. With you in that no man's land between earthly consciousness and eternity. Eventually, he does indeed stumble upon you, literally falls over you. (laughs) And uh, reaching down to support your head, he gives you all he can from the canteen's left. He takes off his jacket and covers you with it. You try to raise your hand in in astonished thanks, but there's no need as he can read the gratitude in your eyes. Not a shot is heard in that hour and a half that Kirkland spends racing from soldier to soldier as if in respectful awe of what is happening and what he's risking. All that is heard are the plaintive cries for the water that is now at least a possibility. He attends to friend and foe alike, both sides Americans, both sides brothers of a sort once again, even if only brothers of the dust. Years later, some will claim it wasn't Kirkland, but someone else, or many other someone else's. Others will claim that he was sniped at, even wounded. But you know better, because you were there. Although you're wonder for the rest of your life why he did it. What was it that was worth more to him than his own physical life? How could he be so certain there was something even more important than his own fears? What or who puts that instinct or knowledge into people that results in bringing the kingdom of heaven, not just onto earth, but overcoming a hell on earth? You won't hear Kirkland's name mentioned nowadays, but you see, it doesn't matter he's not a household name because heroes don't do heroic things for the fame. Their selflessness can inspire us to other, if lesser, acts of love. Love, we must remember, is an action. While Kirkland indeed survived this day, as a result, you did as well, his eventual dying concern was still for others, particularly his father, whom he wanted to know that his son had died right. Perhaps more important is living right day by day. And to do that, you and I 
must know what we are living for, why we were given life. This is everyone's foundation, so that building up and out from that foundation brings meaning and purpose to our lives, so that as much of our lives as possible bring relief and life to others. You know, you have to wonder why such stories of heroism create such a unique response in us, psychologically, physiologically, spiritually. It seems to contradict a spiritless, self-serving, survival of the fittest and purposeless worldview. Perhaps the Brothers' War was but one act in a long play designed to help us recognize and appreciate the true cost of love, of redemption, and reconciliation. And a great job, as always, to Monty Montgomery, a proud Hillsdale grad, and a superb piece of storytelling by Richard Hood. And again, he's one of our listeners from Valencia, California, and we'd love to hear your stories. We're serious about this, folks. I believe the American people are better storytellers than half the professionals in Hollywood, New York, and our main centers of media and entertainment. And Richard just proved the case. Send your stories and suggestions to OurAmericanNetwork.org. And my goodness, this civil war, this war between brothers and fathers and sons, 618,000 were killed. 618,000. At the time, the population of this country was a mere 30 million. So in today's terms, imagine losing six and a quarter million boys and girls on our own soil in a battle over law, custom, heritage. A remarkable thing, a remarkable story. A special thanks to Richard Hood. And here at Our American Stories, always we're trying to connect the stories of the past with the present and the future. The story of the angel at St. Mary's Heights, here on Our American Stories. continue here with our American stories, and we tell stories of all kinds, and particularly the kinds that reveal character, and in this instance, perseverance. Today we bring you the story of a man who dreamed of being in Major League Baseball, but not on the playing field. Here to tell his story is Joe Klimchak. The love for baseball came from attending my first Pirates game when I was seven. My dad took me to my first game at Three River Stadium. It was love at first sight. It really was. I walked in, and, and it was everything about the ballpark. It was, it was the bright green turf. 
it was the lights, it was the sound of the organ, it was the smells of you know, nachos and, and, and popcorn and, 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 and cotton candy and peanuts and, and you, know, you were allowed to smoke then. So it was actually the smell of cigars I liked and, and beer all mixed up into one. So that was great. It was the big jumbotron in center field. It was sensory overload. It was just amazing. Sometimes it just clicks. Sometimes you're just like, this, this space makes me really happy. And I thought, this, is, this atmosphere is just amazing. Everybody's happy here. You know, even when the pirates are, are, are losing, you know, and, and, and there were years that they, we, we, we lost more than we won, but there were obviously championship years too. But in the mid-70s, we were good. We were called the Lumber Company. I have my program from my first game. And then, of course, and then and the big thing for me was this voice then that came over the PA system that was rich and deep and beautiful. And I thought, wow, I heard that voice and I said, I said that's it. Somehow, some way, that's the job I want. I somehow have to be an announcer in a big league ballpark. At the age of seven, I knew exactly what I wanted to do because I thought, that, this is definitely the place and that's definitely the job I want to do. His name was Art McKinnon, the public address announcer. He was a PA announcer for um, almost 50 years. It was like the tones of the Stradivarius is the way his voice has been uh, described. It was just so beautiful and, and I made that connection. And my dad would say that when we went to games after that, I would spend as much time in my seat twisted around watching Art on the fourth level make the announcements or watching the radio and TV guys on the third level and I was just I was locked into the announcer. First steps it was researching these guys and reading about them. My first book was Voices of the Game and I read about all the that was more about not public address but the radio announcers, the Harry Carries, the Harry Callises, the Vin Scullies. And then it was really just watching these announcers on TV doing games, sportscasters, game show hosts. I was a big Richard Dawson fan, Bob Barker fan, Alex Trebek fan. It was more about uh, the show and less about the game. It was like it was like what they did. It was their nods. It was their winks. It was their gestures. I was just absorbing all of that. The evening news, the network news, it would be Peter Jennings, Tom Brokaw, Dan Rather, watching them. The little how, their voice inflection. I just would study that constantly, and it would memorize their scripts. I would rehash them. I remember being in our house, and actually my two younger sisters. What a blessing it was that they would actually play along with me for at least five minutes, I believe. I was in my bedroom, they were in theirs, and I would actually do a little radio show through the heating vent of my bedroom. Just kind of say, okay, you guys, you guys sit here, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a couple announcements, read a couple of news stories, give you the scores from last night. And I had to work extra hard because I attended Center School District in, in Beaver County in Aliquippa. And in my class of 186 students, there was only one that needed remedial speech training, and that one was me. And my mom actually saved that intermediate unit form, and I have it, um, from 1979. I was 10 years old, and I had, uh, I had a bad lisp, couldn't say my S's clearly, and it actually says reason for assignment on the sheet, poor articulation. I, I just generally garbled my words, so um, not a good start for a guy who wants to be a Major League Baseball announcer, so I had to work extra hard. The lisp thing just was terrible for me. It, it took me so many, so many uh, practice sessions, and I still didn't get. It. I was, I was. Uh, I remember I was in this uh, session with another girl who was in another grade. She wasn't in my grade. She was actually a little younger than me, but she got it right away. And I was like, I just couldn't do it. For me to make an S sound, I actually had to bite down, and my S's were, which is still kind of sloppy. But that was the best I could do until it finally clicked, like a year later. Constant repetition, constant studying announcers memorizing scripts, rehashing scripts. Art McKinnon had a drill that he would actually, he's a longtime PA announcer, he had a drill where he would read through magazine articles and if he skipped 
a line or had a hiccup or, or messed up, he would have to go back to the beginning and start again. I would read every article in my Sports Illustrated magazines. And when I read through all those, I grabbed my mom's Woman's Days and Family Circles, and I read all those out loud. So again, I just wanted to get as much repetition as I could because somehow, some way, you know, I wanted to be an announcer in a big league ballpark. So I, I, I'm at Grove City College and majoring in communications. I'm on the radio station staff, and I, I kind of carried that passion for announcing to college because I wanted to get as much experience now that I could there. And with the radio station, I became the sports director, the news director. I hosted a morning show. Um, they had a production studio there. I was always doing announcing in that station. Spent most of my time there. Most of my time was spent there. Um, I was also the public address announcer for all the sports, not just football and basketball, but the Olympic sports too. I did PA for soccer, for volleyball, for swimming, for baseball. Um, again, gathering all the communications, announcing experience I could. That's why for me, Grove City College was a perfect fit because I was hands-on. I was able to do that from, a fresh, from my freshman year for four years to do all that announcing. I collected all this great, great experience. And, and it was because of that that I was actually, I, when I was a sophomore, I said, okay, now with some real experience now, now I think it's time to let the Pirates know that I'm interested in, in, in working for them. Because I know in a couple years it'll be time to graduate, and, and I would love to roll right into a big league announcing job, but those jobs don't come open very often. So I remember writing them a letter, and at this time now, uh, Art McKinnon, the longtime PA announcer who I heard at the age of seven, he was the backup public address announcer now. He was the backup because he was too old. He was in his 80s. Tim DeBacco was the regular announcer. Art was doing the game on, games on Sundays. Tim was doing uh, every other game. But I decided to write a letter to the Pirates and say, Pirates, dear Pirates, my name's Joe. I've collected all this announcing experience. I know you have a regular public address announcer and a backup public address announcer, but I really think, I really, really think you need a backup to the backup public address announcer. That's what you need, because just in the, in the event that Tim and Art can't work a game, you need somebody reliable to fall back on. And I'm your man because I've been listening to these guys for years, memorizing their scripts inside and out. Would you please hire me? or at least give me a listen, or keep me on the list. So a couple weeks later, they wrote me back. It was like, no, we thank you for your interest, but we uh, have two announcers already. We don't need a backup to the backup announcer. And I remember the last line actually saved the rejection letter. It said, best of luck in your efforts to work in baseball. And I was like, ah. Oh. For me, that sounded like a crushing line, because all, all my life, all I wanted to do was work for the Pirates. It almost sounded like, uh, no thanks, and, and, and good luck try somewhere else. We don't have any interest in, in you. But of course, I was uh, obsessed with getting this job, so I wrote them another letter. I said, no, you really need to hire me. You really, really, I, I did detail all my experience. I went into more detail, and they sent me another rejection letter saying, no, we really, we really, thank you. Best of luck on your efforts to work in baseball. So I was crushed. Two rejection letters now. But I was going to be persistent. I was going to keep trying. I was going to keep going after this. So what I decided to do is actually write a letter to Art McKinnon himself. I wrote to the 85-year-old backup public address announcer, longtime PA legend announcer, Art McKinnon. And I said, Art, I really appreciate what you do. You're, you're, you're amazing. You inspired me to do, to do this. I heard your voice at the age of seven, and I said, that's the job I want. Um, is there any chance that you can work me somehow into the organization. I've tried through the Pirates. They sent me some rejection letters. I would love to get on a list of announcers, or if you can give me any guidance, any, any help whatsoever, I'd appreciate it. And when we come back, you're going to hear more of this remarkable story of perseverance. We learn early that he didn't have the talent for this, certainly not naturally. He had a lisp. And if you've ever seen the movie The Natural, and again, he's not a natural, and the movie The Natural, a great baseball movie with Robert Duvall and with uh, Robert Redford, 
Bernard Malamud's classic novel. It was all about a guy who had everything come easy to him and how he squandered it through a, a couple of mistakes. This guy, boy, he had to stick at it and stick at it and stick at it. When we come back, you're going to hear the rest of this remarkable story of perseverance and persistence, overcoming objections and rejection. If you've got a story like this in your family, in your community, and that's one of a character and overcoming obstacles, of overcoming objections and setbacks, send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. We continue with Joe Klimchak's story, a great Pittsburgh story, a great baseball story, after these commercial messages. back with the rest of Joe Klimchak's story here on Our American Stories. At the age of seven, he knew he wanted to be a big league announcer for the Pittsburgh Pirates, not just any announcer anywhere, for the Pirates. When we last left off, he'd written a letter to the man who inspired his dream, longtime Pittsburgh Pirates announcer Art McKinnon. He was awaiting a response. Let's get back to Joe. I'm now working at Grove City College. I've graduated and, and the, the college, uh, it was a real blessing. They hired me to work as their sports information director. Met my wife of now 27 years, Jennifer, at the college. And uh, we were going back to my apartment uh, one night. And uh, this is back in the days of answering machines that flashed when there was a message. So there was a big red one, a hit play. And I can remember like it was yesterday. Joe, this is Art McKinnon. I have your letter here, your very nice letter. I'm under the weather, but I promise to write you back. Goodbye, Joe. I remember I cried when I heard that. I was like, oh my goodness, Art McKinnon has called me, Joey Klimchak, up here in Grove City, Pennsylvania, uh, and he's going to write me back. And I, I remember turning to Jen, I said, that's the crack in the door I needed. Somehow, some way, one day I'm going to be an announcer in a big league ballpark. It's going to happen. Art did write me back. He was true to his word. He wrote me back. Actually, he didn't write me back. He typed me back. It was this typewritten letter that I actually have hanging on my wall right now. And he, essentially, the letter said, Appreciate your kind comments, and uh, you feel you, you appear very qualified to do public address. But uh, my connections aren't what they once used to be, and I really can't help you. Um, but don't pass up on any bets. Work hard, and, and, and essentially saying, not in so many words, best of luck on your efforts to work in baseball. That's kind of I, I felt like it was, it was the same thing from Artie would say, I can't help you, but but thanks for writing and, and good luck. And I was like, ah, oh. again, I, I, I felt a little crushed again, but. Uh, was not going to be deterred, kept pushing. I wrote Art back again, and I said, Art, thank you so much for the letter. And I'm not a pushy guy, but I got a little pushy with Art in a way. I said, Art, is there any way that I can actually watch you do public address for an inning during a Sunday game? I actually picked out the game, September 20th, Pirates against the Phillies, 1992. Can I show up at the ballpark and watch you do public address? Didn't know what he would say. He wrote me back, received your letter, 
Don't buy tickets. Report to press gate A, and I'll see you on September 20th. I was like, wow, this is great. So Jennifer and I show up that day. It was a beautiful day. I remember Mickey Morandini, the Phillies, turned a triple play that day. I remember everything about that day. It was only for six outs, but it was amazing. I felt like it was, you know, just, it was out of body. I was on cloud nine. But those six outs came and went. He turned around. He shook my hand. He said, thank you. Walked me out the door. And, and then Tim DeBacco, who's the regular announcer, he was there, shook his hand. He said, nice to meet you. And he said, good luck. And next thing you know, I'm out in section 600 whatever, sitting there with Jennifer saying, well, okay, that was great and all, but I made some good contacts, I suppose, but I'm really not there. I haven't got my big break yet. yet. I, I, I was still waiting. I have not gotten my big break yet. So I was still a little frustrated. But my big break did finally come months later. I'm working at Grove City College, sports information director. It's lunch break. And I was going to head down to get a sandwich on Main Street. And I turn on an AM radio station, a small Mercer County radio station, WPIC. And the announcer is Dave Hanahan. And he comes on the air. And why he read this announcement, I have no idea. This is Mercer County. This is like 60, 70 miles north of Pittsburgh. But he read this. He said that the Pirates have decided to this upcoming season, have high school games after Pirates games on Sundays. And the first one was going to be, I believe it was like May 16th. I remember the two teams. It was going to be Greater Latrobe against Derry. And I heard that, and instantly I was like, oh my goodness, light bulb went off. I'm not going to get a sandwich today. I'm going to double back to my office. This was before cell phones. I got to my office phone, called the Pirates, obviously thinking like they needed an announcer for these games. So it took a long time to find the person in charge. Finally, they got on the line. They said, we actually hadn't even considered having an announcer for those games. But since you're interested, sure, we'll, we'll listen to a tape. Got to the production studio. Of course, I, I'd memorized the scripts inside and out, knew all the formatics and everything, the pauses, the inflections. The lady's name was Jackie. She called me back the next day. She said, Joe, we heard your tape. And if you're willing to work for free, congratulations. You are the announcer of our high school games after Pirates games on Sundays. I was like, wow, that's great. I'll see you there on May 16th. I'll show up. I can't wait to do this. Um, so that was a big break for me. That, that was huge. I mean, uh, you know, I would have done anything for free. I would have swept the floors for free. But the chance to announce in the big league ballpark, that was, that was amazing. I'm in the same booth, not just in the booth now, but I'm at Art McKinnon's microphone. That was crazy. Announcing in this stadium with 60,000 seats, never mind that only 60 of them were full for my games, but it was still a great experience. I did that for, uh, for a year. Months later, the Pirates gave me a call, and they let me know that the Pirates are going to be soon having an audition for the backup public address announcer position. Art McKinnon is now too old to be the backup PA announcer. So they asked me if I'd be interested in showing up. They knew that I'd written those letters years ago. They knew that I was a high school announcer. They expected that I would be interested in it, and obviously I was. They said, sure, I'd love I'd loved that. So I showed up. Uh, for this audition, hoping it'd just be me and a couple other people, but it was me and eight other people. And they were all people from the Pittsburgh media. And I was like, oh no. So on paper, I really had no chance at winning this audition. I was a kid just a couple years out of college. These were all seasoned professionals. They probably actually handpicked these people to come in. These are guys I've been, and, and actually there was one lady too that I've been listening to and watching for years. So we're all assembled, nine people auditioning to become the backup public address announcer for the Pirates. They take us up to the booth one by one. Got to be my turn. And uh, they said, okay, Joe, here, here's your first announcement. It's, it's the crowd control announcement. And I actually said, I, 
I don't need the script. I've, I actually, I know that one by heart, so I open up the microphone. Ladies and gentlemen, we remind you, please do not go onto the field or in any way interfere with baseball still in play or throw objects of any kind. So I knew that one by heart. Did it, it went well. I actually knew that one backward. I knew that one backward. Play and still baseballs with interfere, weigh any in or field the two on go, not do please, you remind we, gentlemen and ladies. It was crazy. Like, when you, when you want something that bad, you get a little freakish about it. And I was freakish about getting this job. This is a week after the audition, and my director came over and said, Joe, congratulations, you won the audition. You're now the backup public address announcer of the Pittsburgh Pirates. That was huge. I, I was excited. I was like, wow, okay, I, I finally did it. Um, but I'm just the backup. And the, when you're the backup, you don't get many games. So I got my first game. They actually gave me my first game. Usually I would, I would only get a game when Tim can't make the game. He'd have to be sick or have some kind of family emergency. But they gave me my first game, May 26, 1994. Again, remember, like it was yesterday, it was a 13-inning game. Pirates won 11-10 over the Mets. And it was, it was just, it was just, ah, it was a dream come true for me. The next season I worked three games, but after seven seasons as the backup public address announcer, I'd only done seven games. It's the late 90s now, and they were rolling over 2000, and they're building PNC Park. And they opened it up in 2001, and I went to my director and I said, Eric, I'm obviously as the backup PA announcer, not working many games. Is there any chance there might be a new job in the scoreboard department that I could do to work more games? There was a Pepsi bottle that sat over the Clemente wall when they opened up PNC Park. And when the Pirates hit a home run, smoke came out of the Pepsi bottle. It was my job when the Pirates hit a home run to hit the button that made the smoke come out of the Pepsi bottle for 81 home dates a year in 2001, two, three, four. So 2005 rolls around. And what we do before every season is we have a rehearsal at the ballpark before opening day. It's an empty ballpark, it's late March, I'm in my Pepsi smoke chair. We're gonna play a simulated game up on the video board and if the Pirates hit a home run, y'all hit the button, but otherwise I have nothing to do. I'm going through the pregame script and I see there's a little line that says Radio MC. That means that somebody from the Pittsburgh media comes to the ballpark and they stand on the field and address the crowd and say, like they say their name, the station they're from, when their shift is. And I said, okay, it's snowing, it's late March, it's an empty ballpark, nobody's showing up for this position. I went to my director, I said, Eric, since I have nothing to do in the pregame, can I go down, can I be the radio MC today? And he looked at me and he said, you want to do that? I said, I said, I'd love to. He said, grab a microphone. Grabbed the microphone, went down to the field, found the camera guy, and at 6.42 they cued me. And I'm a big preparation guy, but I really hadn't prepared for this. All my announcing really had been uh, not on screen. This was the first thing on the video board. So I got a camera, I didn't even know where to look, but I assumed look into the camera. And it went well. And after that rehearsal, my director tapped me on the shoulder and he said, he said, Joe, we watched you there and we thought it looked really good and we would like you to actually, if you're interested, host one of the games we play between innings on the video board. At the end of the fourth inning, you'll leave your Pepsi smoke guy position, you'll go down to the river walk, and for, for that half inning, you'll play a game with a fan and then come back to the scoreboard room. I said, that'd be great. So now I'm actually announcing it all 81 games, one break. The next year it turned into two breaks, and then a couple years later, and now I'm doing like five inning breaks. The next year I'm doing all of pregame, and, and now I sit here 15 years later. I've been the in-game host of the Pittsburgh Pirates, and I have about nine in-game breaks, all of pregame. I don't take a single day for granted. And this is 15 years later, and I'm just as excited 15 years later as I was the first day I did this job. When I walk onto the field, and the first thing I actually do, I walk onto the field, I look over my left shoulder. I do this every game to remind myself, at the top of the video board, it says, home of the Pittsburgh Pirates. And it's just a reminder. I'm like, it still hits me like, wow. I don't look at myself as 
as an announcer as much as I do a more like a fan with a microphone. I want that to be my persona here. But you know, I, 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 I treat every day like it's opening day because I feel like it's opening day. I'm that excited. And what a story, Joe Klimchak's story. And it wouldn't have happened if his dad hadn't taken him to a ballpark. So you dads out there who think you're not making a difference spending time with your kids. Well, here's a classic story. And he remembers the smells. He remembers the sights. He remembers feeling this bliss. And he's not rejected once, folks, or twice or three times. By the way, he'll take any job and work for free. Remember, he's given that job for free. And he says, I would have cleaned the place for free. And he just kept at it. And he just kept showing up and asking for more. And it's everything we need to learn about how to, how to succeed and thrive and prosper in life is to show up and serve. Joe Klimchak's story, a great story. And thanks to Robbie Davis for doing such a great job on this piece. Robbie spent a good part of his life in college at Grove City College, no less. And so he knows a lot about the folks and the life of Pittsburgh and the role sports play in that great town. Joe Klimchak's story here on Our American Story. Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between. And if you have a story to tell us, send it to OurAmericanNetwork.org. And we've got a well of a tale to bring you right now. This story brings the elements of nature and explosives together in a way that only our executive producer, Jesse Edwards, can explain. This infamous tale of an exploding whale just happened to occur in his home state of Oregon. Here's Jesse. On November 9th, 1970, a 45-foot-long, 8-ton sperm whale washed ashore on the central Oregon coast, just outside the town of Florence. After all these years, it's amazing that this thing has come back to life again. But every once in a while, it pops up. It's an aroma that still lingers. It was one of the worst smells I've ever encountered. Words cannot describe the smell. It was in my nostrils for a solid week. The whale carcass remained rotting on the beach for over a week, and nobody knew what to do about it. It was too big to bury, it stunk too much to cut into smaller pieces, and burning it was out of the question. At the time, Oregon beaches were under the jurisdiction of the state's highway division, which, after consulting with the United States Navy, decided to remove the whale using dynamite. George Thornton was the engineer in charge of the operation. Well, I'm confident that it'll work. The only thing is we're not sure just exactly how much uh, explosives it'll take to disintegrate this things so the scavengers, seagulls and crabs and whatnot can clean it up. Is there any chance it might be more than a one-day job? Uh, if there's any large chunks left and uh, we may have to do some other cleanup, possibly set another charge. 
Thornton was chosen to remove the whale carcass because his supervisor had gone hunting that day. A charge of half a ton of dynamite was selected. As word spread across town, crowds began to gather. I'm thinking we got big trouble here. 20 cases of dynamite. Walter Umenhofer, a military veteran with explosives training, happened to be in the crowd. He warned the crew that the 20 cases of dynamite was an overkill. 20 sticks would have sufficed. But his advice went unheeded. This guy says, anyhow, he says, I'm going to have everybody up there on the top of those dunes far away. And I says, yeah, and I'm going to be the furthest SOB down that way. They made a big spectacle of, of, of waving their hats, the hard hats in the air, and went clear everybody away and all this, all clear. The dynamite was buried under the whale on the leeward side so that most of the mammal would be blown towards the sea. The crowds of people that had come to see the whale be blown to bits were pushed back a quarter of a mile to safety. The dynamite was detonated at 3.45 p.m. What you're hearing are the chunks of rotten whale blubber raining down on the spectators. Walter Umenhofer saw it all happen. And they touched that sucker off, and let me tell you, that thing went up and it was the biggest mushroom cloud you ever seen, and it was red and white and black, and it was nothing but guts and blood and gunk. Carried by strong coastal winds, a cloud of putrid whale fluids moved inland. So everybody all of a sudden started realizing that, oh my God, here it comes. In this mist, we were covered, we were permeated with redness and the smell. Those who witnessed the explosion agree that the next few moments seemed to last forever. It soon became apparent that what should have been little pieces of whale turned out to be big ones. And this stuff starts hitting the ground. Boom, 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 boom. And all of a sudden you realize, my God, I could be killed by whale blubber here. And I'm watching this one piece. There's a big piece up there. It's kind of flubbering and floating around. And we ran. We literally ran. And it just absolutely stopped. And it came flat down and kapow. Right on top of Walter Amenhofer's 1969 Oldsmobile. It was a neat car. I just got it from Dunham's, and it was a Regency. And, and like I say, the funny thing about their 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 slogan is it was a whale of a deal. Well, I got a hell of a whale of a deal. <laughs> Within two days, the state of Oregon wrote Walter a check for the full retail value of his car. The blast blasted blubber beyond all believable bounds, yet only some of the whale was disintegrated. The majority of the whale carcass remained on the beach for the Oregon Highway Division to clean up. Due to damage that was caused to local property, whales that are found beached in Oregon are now buried where they're found. And you may be wondering what happened to the man who decided it was a good idea to use 1,000 pounds of dynamite to blow up the beached whale, George Thornton. Is there any chance it might be more than a one-day job? 
Uh, if there's any large chunks left. In his official report back in 1970, he declared the operation a success, which helps to explain what happened to his career just six months later. He got promoted. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. And great job, as always, to Jesse Edwards, who always manages to find these quirky and yet ultimately American stories. And I just loved hearing the voices and the sound effects. My goodness, I just keep thinking about the smell. And as always, you can send your stories to OurAmericanNetwork.org if you've heard of a quirky one like this or you've just got a personal one that you'd love for us to tell. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. The Exploding Well of Florence, Oregon. That story here on Our American Story. This is Our American Stories, and now we have a story of struggle. Katie Livingston is from Madison, Mississippi. She grew up in a large family, and from an early age, she learned about the devastation of cancer. The first big moment in my life that kind of changed the course of my life was in fifth grade. And so when I was in fifth grade, my mom was diagnosed with cancer for the first time. I remember it was in October, and I get home from school, and all of my aunts are there, which was just really strange because they kind of live all over the southeast. And so I'm hugging them, but I can kind of get a sense that something's weird. And then my parents tell me that we're going out to eat, which is also super weird on a school night for us to go out to eat. They tell me to get dressed and get ready, and all my siblings are coming with me too, which is also weird because at this point, I think my sisters had moved out of the house, and my brother was in college, so... Um, in my fifth grade mind, I knew that something was kind of off. But we went to Bonefish, and I remember we were sitting there, and my mom and dad kept getting up to go outside to get a phone call. And I just thought, oh, they're probably talking to somebody about work, kind of moved on. And then my parents, when we got up to leave, they said, okay, Katie, you ride with um, Aunt Margie and Aunt Kathy, and we're going to take your um, brothers and sisters with us. And so... We got home and I just remember feeling really scared and, but I didn't know why. And so then finally they get home and they sit me down and I don't really remember what they said, but I can remember going into my first ever panic attack in that moment because to a fifth grader, you know, cancer sounds like death. So I felt like they were telling me your mom's dying. And so I just remember the room spinning and then all of a sudden I was in my parents' bedroom and I don't really remember how I got there, but my siblings were with me and my parents were in another room. And um, I just remember that night so distinctly because from then on, everything was so serious for a long time in my life and for a fifth grader. And I don't begrudge my parents at all because you can't stop that from happening. But it was for a long time, I was really angry 
which was so different than how I was before that night. Um, and I was angry at my friends because nobody can really understand when you're in fifth grade. I didn't even really understand. So my dad is my was my soccer coach for so many years. And I remember one night after that happened, we got home and we were sitting in the mudroom taking my cleats and shin guards off. And I just remember my dad just breaking down crying. Um, and I still think of my dad as Superman. And so it was really strange seeing this figure just break down crying in front of me. And I think I was in sixth grade at that point. Um, and I don't think I knew how bad it was going to get yet because they kind of, they still shield me from a lot with my mom, which is understandable because I am the baby. Um, but I remember in that moment, I knew that things were going to get a lot worse. And so mom started her um, more serious rounds of chemo and I can't really put into words how strange it is to see somebody go through the process of chemo. Um, My mom is this huge personality, just her laugh, you can hear it from across the world almost, like she just fills up a space with her laugh. Um, And I remember coming home from school, she had this big leather recliner, and the first time I saw her after her serious round of chemo, her hair was already gone and she was so small and just it's like her essence was kind of shrunk by the chemo and that was probably the hardest part was just seeing the alteration that happened in her personality then she actually got in the clear around my ninth grade year which was amazing um and high school was fantastic and um it was really good and then sophomore year of college she got her second round of cancer she's actually had two different kinds of breast cancer so i think her first kind was the hormone negative kind and instead of it creating a tumor it kind of hid in the lining so it it's a lot more sinister because they don't really see it happen until it's really progressed um and at this point we didn't really know what to think because it was a totally different cancer it was hormone positive And that's not very typical for you to get two different types of cancer for breast cancer. Basically, I had the same reaction that I had in fifth grade, which I think is really interesting that after all of these years, that was still how (laughs) I handled the initial news. So when we got the news of my mom's cancer, we knew that something was strange because it was a new type of cancer. And so the doctors make all of us do blood tests. And so I'm 20 at the time. And we're getting these blood tests done and they find this gene mutation and it's called the CDH1 mutation and it links breast cancer and um, hereditary diffused gastric cancer. And so what this gastric cancer is, is it basically once again hides in the lining of your stomach and the stomach is huge. So the fact that it hides in the lining means that they couldn't not find it until it's progressed to stage five, which is pretty typical. Um, and so my brother and I, my brother Andrew, who is 30 now, he gets a positive and I get a positive in our blood work. And so I'm 20 years old and I'm, the doctors are telling me this means that it's not a matter of if you get cancer, but when you get cancer. And they're saying you need to basically take a semester off of college um, and get your stomach removed. Which the first time I heard that, 
I thought they were totally playing a horrible joke and it was all made up, um, but nobody was laughing. And so I realized that they were being honest. And so I basically said no to them. I said, I'm not gonna take a semester off of college. I'm gonna keep going. And that was really interesting too, because my brother, he decided right off the bat to get the surgery done. He at that point had two kids and a wife and he didn't want to play around with it. He knew he wanted to be around with his family, which totally makes sense. So he decides to get the surgery done without having any biopsies. And so in an endoscopy, so with the biopsies and endoscopies, they go in and they basically take little particles and pictures from your stomach. But what they say is you can't really trust them because the stomach is so huge and they're only doing small sections every one biopsy. I start doing biopsies. My doctors are actually at the National Institute of Health in DC. And so I'm flying back and forth from Memphis to DC um, about every six months at this point. And the first biopsy I ever get actually was horrible. <laughs> they um, told me that my stomach had a lot of um, dead ulcers in it basically. And it looked like a 70 year old stomach, <laughs> which was not really good to hear. My whole family is this way. We kind of just push through stuff rather than handling it when it comes to medical stuff. <laughs> My dad's the type of dad that when we got hurt in soccer, he was like, oh, you're fine. Even if we broke a leg, he's like, you can keep playing. Um, so part of it was the um, stress, but also they said that I had a lot of decay in my stomach, which actually related to the cancer. So with the first biopsy, they said, we actually need you back in sooner than six months. And so that goes into my junior year of college. Um, and I go up there Thanksgiving of junior year, so Thanksgiving of 2018. Um, I fly to DC, I do a biopsy, and then the week before finals, I get the call from my doctor and, and I was walking back to my house. So I pick up and I love Dr. Davis, so I'm expecting to have kind of a jocular conversation with him. But the second I hear his voice, I know that something's up. And so I actually turn around and I walk towards Fulton Chapel. And I'm sitting on the steps of Fulton Chapel when he says, Katie, you have cancer. Like we found some cancer in your stomach. And um, I remember just pretty immediately breaking down. It was a miracle because I immediately called one of my roommates and she was actually on the circle. And so she walked back and found me and then walked me to her car. And so we drove around Oxford and we didn't really talk. She just kind of let me sit and, and sit and think. Then um, she told me, you know, you have to call your family. And you're listening to Katie Livingston. And my goodness, what she's had to deal with at this young age. Well, it's more than anyone should have to bear. Not once, but twice she had to hear about her mom's diagnosis and then to learn that there was a hereditary link between her mom's breast cancer and her own cancer of the stomach. And then to discover that indeed it was cancer. Imagine at the age of 20 hearing, Katie, you have cancer. When we come back, we're going to hear more of this story. And by the way, you have your own stories of overcoming tough medical diagnoses, how a family's coped with them. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. These are some of our favorite stories because they they teach us a lot. And, well, by sharing, we heal. When we come back, more of Katie Livingston's story right here from our home state of Mississippi. This is Our American Stories. 
And we return to Our American Stories, and we've been listening to Katie Livingston tell her story. Her mom had had cancer when she was in the fifth grade, then got another type of cancer when Katie was in college, which they soon found out was genetic. Katie had gotten the call that her biopsy showed she also had cancer, and now she had to tell her family. And I really didn't want to because I, ever since fifth grade, took on the role in my family to make everybody happy. Um, And it's a pressure that I put on myself. It's not something that they put on me. But I want to joke. I will do pretty much anything to make them laugh and smile and make everybody feel like everything's okay. And I knew that this news was going to really wreck my mom in particular. Um, So I, I didn't want to call them, but... Um, she drove us back to our house, and I, we had a huge back porch that was full of leaves right now. And I remember I sat down in the leaves on the back porch, and Elizabeth sat with me. And I called my sister, and I said, Emily, um, I got the results back. I have cancer. And she, <laughs> she replied, you're kidding. Like, this isn't real. You're joking. And I kept saying, no, I'm not joking. Like, this is real. And when she finally understood that I wasn't joking, she said, I will drive down there right now. And I said, no, Emily, I need some time on myself, um, which was really hard for her because I know that she wanted to be with me in that moment. Um, so then I called my dad, and um, these conversations were probably the hardest part of the entire process, um, just giving people that news and hearing the brokenness in their voice when they answer you and knowing that you're kind of a part of the cause of that is really hard um so I call my dad and my dad is really quiet he's a very quiet man I asked him to tell my mom because I couldn't handle it and um he said that he would and then he said I really need to see you tonight will you can Brandon drive you to Memphis and it was at that moment that I realized that I hadn't even told Brandon and so um I said, yes, Brandon will drive me to Memphis. We'll be there tonight. And I was really scared to tell Brandon because my past boyfriend, which this had been over a year ago, um, had pretty much slammed the doors on me at even the possibility of cancer. And at this point, I already loved Brandon. And I was so scared that he was going to just slam those doors. Um, So he got to my house. And I remember I was still sitting in the leaves and he was like, what's going on? What are you doing down there? And I said, oh, you know, I'm just sitting. And he said, well, do you want to get up and we can go get some dinner? And I said, no, not really. And so he came and sat with me and I told him the news and he just hugged me. And um, it was at that moment that I knew that um, I had found my husband because he just looked at me and he was like, we're going to get through this. I have no doubt in my mind. And he was so positive throughout the whole experience, even though there were a lot of repercussions for him and there still are. Because I have a lot of health restrictions, but he rolls with it like a champion and he loves me through it so well. That night continued and so I drove to my sister's house. She lives in Collierville and Brandon was with me. Um, and then my parents came to Carrieville too. And so we all stayed together in Carrieville. And those three days were just really dark and really confusing. Um, 
the original call from Dr. Davis, I remember saying, like, what does this mean? And he said, you have to get the surgery done. Like, you need to come to D.C. immediately and miss next semester. So the reason why is with this gastric cancer, it spreads rapidly. It can sit dormant for 70 years and then something happens and it is it basically can take your life in a very short span of time. And so the fact that it was already active in my body was pretty terrifying. I actually have a distant cousin who passed away at 23 with stomach cancer. Um, And at this point, that was early 2000s. They didn't know what kind of stomach cancer it was. They didn't know it was related to breast cancer. We, they didn't really have any answers like that. Um, but now we're able to look back and know from blood tests that that's what it was. And that Christmas season, I really tried to live it up and enjoy everything that I could and see as many people as I could. But it was all very clouded by my knowledge that I'm going to be moving to D.C. in January. Um because I decided to stay in D.C. until I was relatively healed, just so then I wouldn't have to hop on a plane if I had any complication. So Brandon, my sister, me, and my parents, we drive to D.C. We get there. They check me into the hospital where I'll be for the next few weeks. I meet all the nurses. I meet all the doctors. They're actually, which this is probably how a lot of surgeries are done. I just didn't know this. I probably had seven different doctors that had a key part in the surgery. So one doctor was the person who kind of made the first incision and kind of opened that area up. The next doctor was in charge of actual removing of the stomach. And there was even a doctor that was in charge of like at the very end, putting everything back together. So the surgery basically looks like, you know, I I go under, then I go into the surgery They remove the full stomach, and then they directly connect the esophagus to the intestines. And then that's basically it. So then they kind of stitch you all up, and you're done with the surgery. Um, I think I was in there for about two and a half hours. Um, And then afterwards, you stay in the hospital for about a week. Typically, they want to try and encourage you to get out at a week, but some people have to stay longer kind of depends on your movement after that right after my surgery they give you I actually had an epidural for my medicine and so they gave me this pump that hung over my shoulder and I could press the pump if I needed more medicine and so right after the surgery I kept telling the doctors I think I need a little bit more of this pain medicine and so they gave me more and more and then that night I'm laying in my hospital room and Brandon's on my right side my sister's on my left and Brandon is holding my hand, and my hand has a lot of, both hands have a lot of IVs in them. But I tell Brandon, um, my hand's kind of going numb. Maybe we should not hold hands right now. I don't know why. And so he kind of lets go of my hand, and then I'm like, okay, now my left hand is going numb too. And then my feet start going numb, and then this numbness just like crawls up my body until the only thing that I can feel is my neck. And throughout this whole process, we're trying to get nurses, but I don't really know what was going on, but nurses couldn't come. And so finally they get the head doctors. I think my sister actually went directly to the head doctor. She was pretty fired up. Um, And I remember the doctor rushed in. He pretty immediately was like, we have to shut off all of her medication for the next 
about 12 hours. Um, her body is rejecting it. Like, she can't handle this. We did too much. And so then we get my parents in there and they shut off my medication. And that night, I just remember horrible pain. I mean, I am surprised I didn't pass out because it was just awful. And so they took, I didn't even have like Tylenol the first night after the surgery. It was so bad. And I remember my family was with me the whole night too. And my dad was fanning me because from my pain, I was just sweating and sweating and sweating. And Dr. Diggs stayed in there all night with us too, to kind of monitor my progress. And you're listening to Katie Livingston telling a a remarkable story in great detail. And my goodness, having to tell your own parents, especially if you're the one who's always been diffusing anything bad in the household. Not even, she couldn't tell her mom. She had to tell her dad to tell her mom. She just couldn't do it. And then, my goodness, hearing about this surgery, and then hearing about one hand going numb, the next, the body. But my goodness, Brandon, she knew he was going to be her husband because, well, he just hugged her. And as she put it, well, he was like a champion. He rolls with things like a champion. When we come back, more with Katie Livingston's story here on Our American Stories. Turn to our American stories and the last part of our story with Katie Livingston. She had just received a full gastrectomy, and after a bad reaction to the pain medicine, the doctors had to take her off everything. So she braved her first night post-surgery unmedicated. We return to the story. So that was a really big night, and that set me back a little bit on recovery. And so with this pain... A lot of it was faith that got me through because I couldn't really move or speak or do anything without hurting. And so even though I had all these people surrounding me, I really had to just focus on the Lord. And there were a lot of verses that um, were running through my mind about walking through darkness, and I had never walked through darkness like that before. And through this just, like I said, just blinding pain. And um, I don't know. I think really God gave me peace that I was going to get through it because it, it really wasn't a question of if, but just how. <laughs> and so a lot of it was me just being as still as possible. I don't know. I, I feel like I learned that being still is just as active as fighting back because it, it could have been easy in some of these situations to lose my mind, throw a fit, all this kind of stuff, but still I couldn't have done anything. I was powerless. So instead, I kind of, it was a moment of obedience of saying, I know that you have me, even though I don't really know when this night is going to end. But the night did end, and the next few days were really bad because, like I said, those, that night set me back a lot on my recovery. And I (laughs) was disgusting. I didn't brush my teeth, didn't shower after a long time. 
And slowly, kind of my family had to get back to regular life. So my sister had to fly back. Then Brandon had to fly back to start school. And then my dad had to go back because of work. And so then it was just my mom and I. And it got to the point where Dr. Diggs, once again, um, was coming in and saying, Katie, you have to move. I know that this is scary, but you have to move. You're not going to get any better if we don't get you out of this bed. And so he kind of was the one who pushed me to get out and to move and to take those first steps, which were really painful. Um, And so another story that I remember um, about when I was in recovery in the hospital is the first time that I brushed my teeth by myself. Um, And honestly, now brushing my teeth, even to this day, it's a very freeing thing, which sounds so silly. Um, But when I could take my steps to the sink by myself and pick my toothbrush up and brush my teeth. I just remember I was looking at myself in the mirror and just sobbing because all of the things that I had taken for granted had been swiped away. Um, And even the first shower that I took my mom when I was 21 at this time, 20, I guess. Yeah, 20. My first shower that I had, it was like I was a baby again. Like my mom had to give me a sponge bath basically and that was kind of humiliating just because all of my independence was kind of gone at this time um and I felt bad for my mom because my scar was horrendous and so she was also having to deal with that and so yeah in the hospital I started slowly getting some independence back and then we moved into an apartment in DC and that was really fun well as fun as it could be um, but we, I was able to have visitors, so I expected the pain. I expected the physical struggle that the surgery was going to be. But my brother and I have both said that we did not expect the emotional, mental, and spiritual pain that came with it. Um, and it was really interesting hearing my brother talk about this, too, because I'm already a pretty emotional person. My brother is not so much, Um But it's been so cool to bond with him over this experience. And um, I remember when I was having a really bad, about month three is when kind of depression set in, um, which part of it was chemical and part of it was nutrition. But then it was also just you feel so isolated because everybody around you is living their normal life. And all of a sudden, your however many years you've lived on earth has been flipped upside on its head, you know, Um, So I remember calling him when I had just one of my worst emotional breakdowns and he was able to so much understand everything that I was saying that it was able to, I was able to compartmentalize and say, okay, this is kind of normal. Like I feel insane, but, but this is normal. Yeah. So the emotional side of going through this experience has given me a lot of empathy. I feel like for people, especially for my mom who have had to live through having cancer Um, because one, you feel like such a burden on people that you love. And that's really hard because one of the biggest things you need is love. You need support, you need community, but you also don't want to feel like you're burdening people. And that's just this really weird dichotomy of, I want a hug, but I don't want a sympathy hug, if that makes sense. But you can get into this mindset of creating everybody's actions as just being out of pity but they're not. That's just something that you're doing mentally. And that was one of my biggest fears way before I ever got diagnosed with the cancer was becoming this one 
thing is becoming this sickness, becoming this um, disability. And people are so much more than the struggles that they experience. Yes, like I am completely changed by that experience, but I am still a teacher. I'm still a coffee lover. I still love music. I still um, really enjoy playing games. And I think for the longest time, my depression kept me captive to this thought that nobody is going to see you outside of your cancer. Um, all of your old friends, they're only going to see you as having cancer, kind of this mentality, um, which can be really dangerous because then when people try to contact you, you throw up these walls. And you're like, oh, I'm busy, or I'm really tired, or no, I can't do that, blah, 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 you know, give a reason. So watching my mom go through the process of having, because she really puts a lot of shame and responsibility on her own shoulders for what we've been through, which Andrew and I constantly are saying, mom, don't do that. You know, this is not from you. This is generations back, you know. Um, I actually have talked to my brother about this because he has three children now. Um, And, you know, we have a lot of hope because of the work that NIH and other hospitals are doing on this. They have just come leaps and bounds from where we were 10 years ago. You know, if I had been born 10 years ago or farther back, I probably wouldn't have known all of this genetic information and I probably would have died at 23. So it is this weird feeling that I know that my kids will have a different walk than some kids their age, but we all, even if we don't know what other people are going through, every single one of us has pain in their life and has struggle and has... Um, you know, I even think that everybody has sickness somehow in their life. The more and more that I talk to people, the more people that say, oh yeah, my blank struggles with this cancer or my blank has this disease and it's really hard for us. And so I don't know, I have this weird piece about it now with my kids, which was not, (laughs) not the matter two years ago when I first went through the surgery. Brandon, the first time kind of rewinding back, when I got the blood test back that was saying that you are positive, so this means that it's a matter of when you get cancer, not if. And from that moment, he said, this is never going to change who you are. This is only going to make your story more beautiful, and and this is only going to make you be able to reach more people and love them better. And that has really been his mentality this entire time. And so... We started dating, and then, like I said, I got the cancer news, and I told him, and he responded with open arms and encouragement. And he has always said that our relationship and our future is worth whatever sickness, because my sickness sometimes that happens is I could be out for a few hours, and so it can really kind of derail our plans. I think I forget all of the trauma that my body has been through, and I get angry when my body can't do something. So when I get really tired after something that you know, quote, normal people um, don't get tired from, I get really angry with myself. And then it goes into this whole cycle of envy and wishing I was somebody else. And and it can happen really quick, so really quickly. So I'm trying to learn how to give myself more grace to know that my body has been through a lot and it's still healing. The biggest thing I've learned is to not take anything for granted. And to live in the moment. Um, Because before all of this happened, I was constantly looking to what's next, what's next, what's next. And I've realized now that sometimes the next can be robbed from you. 
and life really can be so short. And so the present moment has become so much more beautiful to me because you never know what is coming next. Um, and also to always be very grateful for what we do have. Because like I said, with brushing my teeth, when I wasn't able to brush my teeth, I realized how much I missed it. And when I wasn't able to have coffee for a few months, even the coffee, I missed it so much. And so now when I order coffee and when I brush my teeth, I'm really grateful. And what a voice. And thank you, Katie, for sharing that. Thanks, Faith, for bringing us this story. And wow, what lessons learned, what wisdom from someone so young. Uh, from her empathetic powers that she's developed from this setback to learning how to not take life for granted and to live for the moment. And my goodness, the present is more beautiful for me now. I'm grateful for what I do have. And by the way, what she does have is one heck of a husband. This will never change who you are. It will just make you more beautiful. And there are men who can say these words to their wives and men who can't. And I think we all want to be like Brandon. Thanks to Katie Livingston for sharing her story again, her battle with cancer. It hurt, it took, but it gave and brought her and her husband closer together and her family and her brother. The Livingston family story here on Our American Stories. 